please stand for the reading of God's infallible word. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, says, He also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We just want to come before you, Lord, giving you all praise, glory, and honor that only is due to you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that it might illuminate our hearts today as we delve into your word. And again, thanking you for the opportunity that you give us each and every day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I was listening to Christian radio the other day, and a verse was read about the proud and the arrogant. I don't even remember which one it was. There's a lot of them in scripture that talks about that. But I don't know about you, but so often when we hear verses that we've heard so many times before, we think, oh, I know what that verse is talking about. After all, we all know what an arrogant person looks like, don't we? whether it's the brash superstar athlete who after making a big play is beating his chest or making that all too familiar pose, right? Or the mega movie star who thinks that they are God's gift to the world. I know when I first started getting into sports, Muhammad Ali had just bursted onto the scene. You talk about being brash and arrogant. For those of you who are old enough, do you remember his famous catchphrase? I am the greatest, right? But I remember hearing a story about Ali that one time he was on a plane and the flight attendant came up and told him he had to fasten his seatbelt. And he told the flight attendant that Superman don't need no seatbelt, which the flight attendant quickly responded, Superman don't need no plane. So he humbly fastened his seatbelt. When we see people acting this in such a manner, being puffed up and full of pride, we're usually turned off by it, aren't we? Unless, of course, it's us that's acting in that way and that somehow it's okay when we do it. Isn't there a verse somewhere that talks about being more worried about the log in our own eye than the speck in someone else's? I know when I first met Terry's grandparents, Terry's grandmother, a lot of you knew her as Nana, said she really didn't care too much for me because she felt I was arrogant. And I know for a lot of you that know me, this is just downright hard to believe, right? Me being arrogant? (laughs) But in thinking all of this, 
God's word has a way of going below the surface and penetrating deep into our souls. As someone once put it, God's word is shallow enough for babes to play in, but yet deep enough for elephants to swim. And sometimes what we think something means is not exactly what God has in mind. James 4.16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So again, our minds quickly jump back to the people that we've been talking about. But isn't it amazing how God's word can cut us to the quick? Because the very next verse, verse 17 in James, gives us God's definition of what arrogance is. He says, so whoever knows what is right, what is, knows what the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I think that that is why the passage that Carl read earlier, I don't know if you caught it or not, but God calls an arrogant heart an abomination to him. At the end of the reading, he also says that pride comes before a fall. These are very strong words that God uses. If we look up the definition of abomination, it talks about a hatred towards something, loathing, disgust, outrage, horror. I don't know about you, but when I read something that God has such strong things to say, I want to know exactly what he's talking about, don't you? And that is why the passage in St. James is so revealing. It gives us concise definition of what God is talking about when he mentions pride or arrogance. Again, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So let me ask you this. On a good day, how many commandments do we break? But there's 10 of them, right? So on a good day, if we're being honest, we probably break, what, four or five of them? And let's be truthful now. On a bad day, we break all 10 of them numerous times, don't we? I don't know about you, but I get a kick out of reading bumper stickers. And one of my favorite ones only has three words on it. It's not them. We all know people who always think that the deck is stacked against them, almost like there's some big conspiracy that is out to get them. But if we are honest at looking deep into God's word about what he thinks arrogance is, let me tell you, it's not them, it's you. And if you notice, when I'm pointing one finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. So when he's talking about this, he's not talking about them. He is talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about us. So we are all in the same boat. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when we read passages like this, the Lord is not talking about someone else. He's talking about us. So why is this sin of pride and arrogance so deep-seated in each one of us? Why do we constantly usurp the authority of God? Why do we so often think our way is better and we don't rely on our loving, gracious Heavenly Father who has shown us great love and kindness and grace? Why is it we have such a rebellious spirit to the one who loves us the most? 
As James puts it, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Just dwell on that for a moment. Every good gift comes from above, and yet we have this rebellious heart towards him. And I believe it can be traced clear back to the garden where Satan tempted Eve by telling her, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. If this is not a picture of arrogance, what audacity to think by eating some fruit we can be like God? But before we jump too quickly on Eve, isn't that exactly what we do every time we choose to break one of God's law? So this audacity of Adam and Eve has polluted man's heart every since. Now, after that long introduction, let's turn to the text at hand and remember, it's not them. When we look at this parable, it is so easy to look at it in just a straightforward manner, isn't it? The arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee and the humble, contrite tax collector. But I think there is a much deeper and more penetrating way of interpreting this parable. So let's dig a little deeper into what the Lord is trying to show us here in this parable. And again, before we jump on the bandwagon and start dumping on the Pharisee, uh, let's take a moment to examine his life. It says he twice fast a week, or he fasted twice a week. Does anybody know what the law required at this time? That a man fast once a year. This Pharisee says he, tw- he fasted twice a week. If we do a little bit of a study into other practices that the Pharisees did, we would find that they memorized large portions of scripture, they prayed regularly, they were zealous for good works, and they faithfully attended the religious festivals and Sabbaths associated with worship. None of these things in and of themselves are bad things, are they? It's all good stuff. I know us elders, we would be thrilled if we had members memorizing large passages of scripture, being zealous for good works, and attending all the worship services. And I know the deacons would love it if we all gave a tithe on all that we had. All in all, they look like very committed church members, don't they? Now let's look at the other main character in this parable the tax collector. It seems like Jesus a lot of times puts the unexpected characters in his parables as the one who does right or the one who is lifted up in the end. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a great example of this. It is the Samaritan that is depicted as the good neighbor, not the priest or the Levite, which when Jesus told this parable, the crowd had to gasp in hearing it. A Samaritan? A dog Samaritan? That is how the Jews viewed the Samaritans, as filthy dogs. A good, devout Jew would walk many miles out of their way just to avoid walking through Samaria. But yet Jesus portrays the Samaritan as the good neighbor. Or if we look at the parable of the prodigal son, where in the end it wasn't the good and faithful son 
who stuck by his father's side throughout it all that got the big banquet, was it? But it was the one who goes and squanders away his inheritance. And it is the same in this parable. We have the Pharisee, and then we have this lowly tax collector. And to understand just how shocking this parable must have been to those listening, we need to get a better grasp on exactly who the tax collectors were in this time. If you think today tax collectors are not the most popular people in the world, this does not even compare to how they were looked upon in those days. The tax collector in those days collected taxes for the hated Roman government. They did not only collect taxes that were due, but they were able to add on any amount that they felt was obtainable with the backing of the Roman army and was allowed to keep anything over what the Roman government taxes were. In essence, they sold their soul to the Roman government for money. They betrayed their own people so they weren't the most popular people around to say the least. Again, in this parable, Jesus is using the most unlikely character the people could think of as the one who was justified. It is hard to believe what the hearers of this parable must be thinking. A tax collector is justified over a Pharisee? It can't be. There is no way possible this could happen. It would take a miracle for this to take place. And you know that there's people today that say miracles don't take place anymore. But I think one of the greatest miracles is that God takes the heart of an unregenerate man and changes it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Do you realize what God has done for us? We were not bad people that needed cleaning up. We were dead, foul-smelling, rotten flesh that didn't need to get our act together, but we were hopelessly dead. There was nothing we could do, yet through the grace and mercy of a loving Heavenly Father, Paul tells us, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And if this wasn't enough, Paul goes on to say that God raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I think Paul must have been leaping to his feet when he's dictating this. They say familiarity breeds contempt, and I think that sometimes we hear this stuff so often, we just kind of gloss over it. But when we hear passages like this, our hearts should leap with praise for our Lord and Savior. Because I know... that I stand before you today a true miracle, a wretched dead sinner brought to life. So what is this parable actually saying? That we should try to be humble? It's easy to read it this way and to think, isn't it? But again, God's word goes so much deeper than that. And there is also two huge problems 
with interpreting this parable that way. First of all, we can't do it. And secondly, if we take it that way, aren't we falling into the same trap as the Pharisee? Our prayer might as well be, Lord, I thank you I'm not like other people, hypocrites, overly pious, self-righteous, or even like this Pharisee over here. We come to church each week, listen to scripture attentively, and we have learned to be humble. We fall into the same trap of us versus them. Again, it's not them. That reminds me of the story about Benjamin Franklin in his older years. He realized how wretched pride was. And if we read anything about old Ben, we know that he was a very prideful person, right? So he decided to work on it. And after time, he realized that he started to get prideful about being humble. As I said earlier, this sin is so ingrained in us, we can't overcome it. But praise be to God, through him we can. So if this parable isn't about trying to be humble, then what is it Jesus is trying to tell us through it? I think the answer is in the prayer of the tax collector. How was it that he came before the Lord? The passage tells us, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is amazing that the tax collector was doing the same thing as the arrogant superstar was doing, beating his chest. But what is the big difference here? Whereas the star athlete with his chest puffed up and his head held high, he's beating his chest to draw attention to himself. Look at me, look at me. Whereas the tax collector standing far off in complete contrast to the Pharisee who was standing by himself to draw attention to himself just like the star athlete did. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6 when he says, and when you stand, I'm sorry, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Who was it that stood and prayed in the synagogues? It was the Pharisees, right? But how was it that this tax collector came? He didn't even feel worthy to come up to the door of the temple. He stood far off with his head hung low, so desperate, so full of need, beating his chest to show his desperation, not to draw his attention to himself, because he's seen himself as he truly was, without hope. Throwing himself, himself on the mercies of God, knowing that it was his only true hope, that the creator of heaven and earth might look down upon him and have mercy on him. The tax collector was so full of desperation, the only thing he could do was beat his chest, not like the athlete, with chest puffed up and head hung high. No, he was beating his chest because he was this lowly tax collector that could do nothing but hang his head down low and continually beat himself knowing that there was nothing in him 
that could be that could justify himself. In Psalm 51, 16 and 17, the psalmist says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you do not despise. I believe the whole purpose Christ gave us his parable was not to tell us to be more humble, but that we need to be more desperate. Not that we can be any more desperate than we already are, but we see the depth of our desperation. And like the tax collector, we realize that without Christ and Christ alone, we are truly the most desperate people in the world. This is how we need to come before the Lord, knowing that there is nothing in us worth, worthy of saving. It is only through the grace and mercy of our loving Heavenly Father that we have any hope. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen: For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What assurance God gives us here. Not only is he dwelling in the heavenly places, he is also dwelling with those who come to him with a lowly spirit and a contrite heart. For this is truly the only way that desperate sinners can come before a holy God. And like the passage we read earlier, if we believe and trust in Christ, he has raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Praise God. Did you notice that this was written in the past tense? So that if we trust in Christ, this has already happened to us. Again, what a miraculous thing the Lord has done for us. And it should inspire a sense of awe in us towards our Heavenly Father. But like I said earlier, familiarity can breed contempt. And far too often, and I can only speak of my own heart, it leads to an almost flippant way that we come to the Lord. In one of the most famous and powerful sermons ever preached in the U.S., a sinner in the God, a sinner in the hands of an angry God, listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice aims the arrow at your heart and, the, and strains the bow. <clears throat> It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the era one moment from being drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls are never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin, you are thus in the hands of an angry God. Tis nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this very moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. Wow, that is as powerful today as it was over 250 years ago when Jonathan Edwards preached it. God is not our kindly old grandfather in heaven. He is creator of heaven and earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is exactly who he says he is. This should never be taken lightly. He is due all reverence and honor and praise and glory. My hope in this message today is that those of us believers who came in here today with some false sense of pride, that we might be convicted of our pride and arrogance and that we can come before the Lord with repentance so that we can come before him with broken and contrite hearts. We do have forgiveness in Christ, but that forgiveness should never, be, should never lead us to come before the Lord with a sense of obligation from the Lord to us. It should always lead us to a sense of awe and obedience. As Paul puts it, shall we sin more so that grace shall abound more? May it never be. For those of you who came in here today not trusting in Christ, not relying on the promises given in God's word, for you, I hope today will be the day of salvation for you, that the Spirit of God performs the miracle of transforming your hearts so that today you can leave here with full assurance that if you place your trust in Christ, that you will not have to fear that impending everlasting destruction that Jonathan Edwards talks about. That there is a savior and his name is Jesus. People may fail you, but Christ will never let you down. And you can walk out of here justified like the tax collector by the work that Christ has already accomplished for us. As the old hymn says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. If you humbly come before God, as John tells us in 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If God is piercing your heart today, Please don't leave here without talking to someone. It might be someone close to you. It can be one of the elders, or it could be myself. But please don't leave here today without resolving the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we humbly come before you and we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that it is enlightening to us, Lord, and I pray that as we go through the day, Lord, that we might reflect upon it and upon who you are and upon who we are, Lord, that you show us who we truly are, Lord, and we'll continue to praise you in Christ's name. Amen.